You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4. We'll read again together the first six verses, then we'll pray. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob's, Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity to us. We thank you for revealing to us yourself, your plan, your salvation, your gospel, and all things. We ask now that beyond the words of a mere man, that we would hear your voice in the text of Scripture that you would bless this time by the power of your Spirit, and that, Spirit of God, you would be our teacher this morning. We are dependent upon you for all things. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your help to us. And we ask that it be so today in Jesus' name. Amen. On my uh, shelf in my living room at home on one of my bookcases, there is at last count, one shelf that I have devoted entirely to this, at last count, 15 books on, by, or about Ronald Reagan. 15 biographies. I'm a big fan of Ronald Reagan. I love Ronald Reagan. Cold War era history has always fascinated me. I love reading about it and studying about it. It's just one of those periods of world history that I find immensely intriguing. And my children know this. In fact, just a couple of months ago, we were sitting down at the dinner table, and uh, Taryn was going through a section in her in her school, in her homeschool workbook on World War II, and she had to write an essay for World War II, and the results of World War II. And so she was, we were talking about that over the dinner table. And uh, I said to her, I started to explain to her how it is that the World War II and how World War II ended set up the Cold War, basically established the Cold War, put in place the Iron Curtain, and left us with this insane situation of a divided Germany and a divided Berlin and a Berlin Wall and all of that. I got about four sentences into my explanation. And one of my children, I won't say who because Taryn gets embarrassed easily, she raised her hand <laughs> and she said, Dad... Somehow this is going to end up with Ronald Reagan again, isn't it? <laughs> and all of the other kids are sitting around the table nodding their head as if they, they knew that that's where we were going. Fifteen different biographies on, about, or by Ronald Reagan, and no two of those biographies are the same. Each biographer presents a little bit of a different portrait of Ronald Reagan. I have a biography, for instance, by Peggy Noonan, who was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, and she talks about what life was like writing speeches for the great communicator. And I have a book by uh, the, uh, what's it called? It's the executive um, assistant to the president, basically his number one aide who traveled with him everywhere. Uh, Kuhn is his last name, and Jim Kuhn. And Jim Kuhn writes about what it was like to travel with Reagan and to be his personal assistant, his advisor, his right-hand man. He spent more time with Ronald Reagan and the first family than any other advisor, any other person close to the president. 
I have a couple of biographies by men who served as spiritual advisors to Ronald Reagan and have studied the spiritual life of Ronald Reagan. I got one that's all about the economic policies of Reagan. I got one that's all about the domestic policies of Ronald Reagan. I have a book that's all about Reagan's crusade to abolish nuclear weapons and shows how Reagan was uh, pursuing the presidency, not for the sake of the presidency, because he wanted to take down communism. It's the only reason he wanted the job, so he could destroy communism and bring down the Soviet Union. So I got all these different books by all these different biographers, and they have a plethora of material to choose from that they could have chosen from any of these stories or these incidences. No two of them are the same. Each one presents just a little bit of a different picture of Ronald Reagan than the other. But all of those books are necessary in order to get a a full-orb, well-rounded understanding of this man and his times and what it is that he accomplished and why he did what he did and why he lived the way that he did and why he was president. It is very similar with the biographies that we have of the Lord Jesus. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We only have four of them. Each biographer presents just a little bit of a different perspective on the Lord Jesus. Matthew presents the perspective of Jesus Christ as king. He quotes all the Old Testament prophecies that show that Jesus Christ is the king and that he was the promised king, the son of David, who came to establish the kingdom and who will one day establish the kingdom. Mark has a little bit of a different perspective on Jesus, not really presenting him as king, but a different aspect of his person and his work that Jesus is the servant. And so Mark treats him as a servant. So everywhere Jesus goes, you see him as the servant of the Lord who fulfills all of the Lord's desire and all of the Lord's intentions for his perfect servant. Luke has a little bit of a different perspective on Jesus. Luke, as the physician, presents the compassion of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the emotion and the feelings that are tied up in the person of Jesus. John presents the deity of Jesus. And John gives us a perspective of Jesus Christ that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not give us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke knew of the deity of Christ. They present the deity of Christ in their Gospels. But John, being written much later, presents a perspective of Jesus that's slightly different. Not just emphasizing his deity, and we also see the humanity of Jesus in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of John, the perspective we get on Jesus is one that the others do not present to us, and John gives us in his Gospel material that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them mention. In fact, the first five chapters of John's Gospel, all five of those chapters contain material that none of the other Gospel writers mention. Now, it's not that the other Gospel writers were ignorant of those things. It's just that they chose for their purposes to record things that sort of suited the purpose of telling the story of Jesus. John selects material for five solid chapters that no other Gospel writer mentions. And we saw in chapter 1, the calling of the disciples, not mentioned in any other Gospel. The wedding in Cana of Galilee and the miracle of turning water into wine not mentioned in any other gospel, only in the gospel of John. The cleansing of the temple that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only in John. Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, only mentioned in John. John's last testimony to Jesus, sparked by the disciples, questioned to him about the growing popularity of Jesus, only given to us in the gospel of John. And now we come to John chapter 4. And John chapter 4 contains another incident that is not mentioned by any of the other gospel writers. And it is Jesus' encounter with a woman at a well in the region of Samaria. So today I'm just going to simply introduce to you John chapter 4. Kind of give a little bit of a background. We're going to look at these few verses up at the front that we just read at the beginning that describe for us and sort of set the stage for this encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. There's a lot of stuff we have to say up front so that as we work our way through the details, some of these things will begin to make sense and we can understand them in our context. So that's what we're going to do today. Let me give you just a couple of observations, actually four of them, just about these John chapter 4 and what we what we have here, just in general. 
This first, this incident with the woman at the well takes up 42 verses of John's Gospel. 42 verses. The first 42 verses of John chapter 4, the bulk of that chapter, have to do with this encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. Now you can know this. When a Gospel writer sat down, or when an author of the New Testament sat down, and he had a scroll in front of him, he knew he had a limited amount of space, a limited amount of time to communicate what he wanted to communicate. So whenever you see a bulk of material given to one particular incident, we always have to sit back and say, why is that there? Why did John choose that particular incident? He devotes 42 verses to this encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well and the results of it with the village and the villagers in Sychar. Now, why does he do that? 42 verses is twice the amount of space that he devotes to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, who was a Jew, who came from a party of people that was Jesus' Devoted enemies. He only gave 21 verses to Nicodemus. Why 42 to this woman at the well? And I think I have a, a hunch as to why that is. I'm going to get to it here in just a second. The second observation we have to ask is, why is it that John does devote this amount of space? And why is it that John includes this at all? Now, at the end of his gospel, John says, many of the things I could have written to you that Jesus said and did, which I haven't included here. In other words, he had a lot of material to, to choose from that he could have used to present who Jesus was. Why does he choose the incident of the woman at the well? Why did he think that was important? And I think there's a reason for it, and I think this is it. It simply boils down to the fact that the woman at the well was not a Jew. All the way back in the Gospel of John chapter 1, we saw that he came into his own, and his own did what? He rejected him, did not receive him. Right? So he came as a light to the world. He came into his own, and his own didn't receive him. He went into Jerusalem, into the temple, and he found nothing but apostate religious practices and religious uh, services and worship there. He cleansed the temple. He confronted a Pharisee, Nicodemus, and he told that Pharisee, look, I remember back in chapter 1, John the Baptist said, he, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You already see the start, the broad scope of God's love and God's intention in salvation and what he's doing in Jesus. Then in John chapter 3, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life god did not send his son into the world to judge or condemn the world not at the first coming but that the world through him might be saved so now john's intention all the way through this gospel and he's been alluding to it is that the reason that jesus came into this creation was to bear the sins of the world to take away the sin of the world as an offer of salvation to the world not all men without exception but all men without distinction that is, without racial distinction. It's not just Jews that Jesus came to. John's Gospel is a very broad Gospel, and it presents to us the saving intention of Jesus Christ, not just to a narrow group of people known as the Jews, but the saving intention of Jesus Christ to a large group of people, all of humanity, that is, the whole world. Now, if John is going to show us that he came as a lamb to take away the sin of the world, because God so loved the world that he wanted to save the world, because he is the light of the world... What better illustration could you use than Jesus himself going to, seeking out a woman who was not a Jew, and presenting the gospel to her, and to show the results of what it means to believe in the saving gospel. That's why John includes this. In order to demonstrate, look, the Lord himself went and sought out a woman who was not a Jew to bring salvation to her. It is an illustration and an example of the love of God for the whole world. A third observation we could make is that this woman at the well really appears in a series of people early in John's Gospel that started back in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Remember, the multitude believed on him because of the signs that he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because, John says, Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. He knew their hearts. He knew their motives. He knew their intentions. 
And then almost as if John is just trying to prove that point at the end of chapter 2, he lays out for us a series of encounters that take us all the way through chapter 5. The first encounter is with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an illustration that Jesus knew what was in man. Here was a righteous man who came to Jesus, all the outward righteousness, and Jesus cuts right to the heart of the issue and says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. All your outward righteousness notwithstanding, you need to be born again. Then we get exhibit B, the woman at the well. Now talk about an ability to know people. Go get your husband and come here. Well, I don't have a husband. Is that the truth? Well, kind of. It's sort of a half-truth that's really a lie. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. How did he know this? He knows all men. John chapter 2. He didn't need anybody to sit down with him and say, look, the woman at the well. Here's what you need to know going into this encounter, Jesus. She's had five husbands. She's a very immoral woman. She's living with one right now. And her whole philosophy of worship is all messed up. She thinks people ought to be worshiped on Gerizim. Jesus didn't need anybody to tell him any of that because he knew what was in men. Then we get the account at the end of John chapter 4, the healing of the nobleman's son. And then we get another individual account at the beginning of chapter 5, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. 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 It's Bethesda, not Bethesda. At the pool of Bethesda. All four of those encounters, one right after another, serve to show us that Jesus knew what was in men. And this woman at the well is just one of those encounters. The fourth observation we would make, and this has to boils down really to remembering back what was in chapter 3, the differences between the woman at the well and this man named Nicodemus. Those two people, John could not have chosen two people as a case study, exhibit A and exhibit B, who were more polar opposite of each other than Nicodemus and the woman at the well. In fact, I sat down. Oh, I should say this too. At the end of chapter 3, you remember the statement. We covered it last week. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That statement, two choices, belief and unbelief, they are sandwiched. That statement is sandwiched right between two people, Nicodemus. And when he walked away from Jesus, did he believe or not believe? Didn't believe. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you don't believe what I'm telling you. And the reason for your unbelief, because you like darkness, you love darkness, you hate the light. Nicodemus did not believe. The woman walks away and she did believe. And sandwiched between those two encounters is that charge to us. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe walks away under the wrath of God. Nicodemus walked away under the wrath of God. The woman at the well believed and walked away with eternal life. So I sat down this last week and I came up with 20 different differences. Well, that was a poor choice of words. 20 differences between the woman at the well and Nicodemus. Of course, they're different differences. You wouldn't have similar differences, would you? Or the same differences? They said, hey... That number three sounds a lot like number two and number one. So they are differences, 20 differences between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Now I'll just list them for you. Number one, Nicodemus is a man and the woman at the well was a woman. And you say, yeah, <laughs> thank you for pointing out, Captain Obvious, what was obvious to all of us. But had I not mentioned that, somebody would have come up and say, hey, you forgot to mention that one was a man and one was a woman. I didn't say all 20 of them were profound observations. I just said that I had 20 different observations or differences, and you have to admit, that's a difference. One is a man and one is a woman. A second difference is that you'll notice Nicodemus is named, and the woman at the well is not named. Now, that's curious to me. Did John not know her name? The end of the passage says that Jesus and his disciples spent two more days in that village with that woman and those people that got saved that day. How did John walk away not knowing that woman's name? I think he knew her name. Why does he not mention her name? All the way through the passage, she's just known as the woman or a woman of Samaria or the Samaritan woman, but never names her name. 
He doesn't do that with Nicodemus. He doesn't say a man of the Jews came to Jesus and this man came by night and this man said that. He names the man Nicodemus, but he doesn't name the woman at the well. Why is that? I think there's a reason for it. We'll get to it later. But one is named and one is unnamed. And if I don't mention that reason later on, by the way, why one is named and one is not named, remind me. Number three, one is a Jew and one is a Samaritan. And number four goes with this, number three. Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. So I guess they had that in common, mutual hatred for each other. So they're not all that different, are they? Each of them hated somebody, they hated one another. If you'd got the woman in the well along with Nicodemus, Nicodemus Nicodemus would have had a beeline out of there. He would have nothing at all to do with Samaritans. They hated one another. Difference number five, Nicodemus was an Orthodox worshiper. This woman is a very unorthodox worshiper. Number six, Nicodemus worshipped in Jerusalem on Mount Zion at the temple. This woman worshipped on Mount Gerizim in Samaria at a different temple, at a different place. Very unorthodox worshipper she was, but Nicodemus was very orthodox. Number seven, Nicodemus was a very outwardly righteous man. The woman at the well, openly unrighteous. Number eight, Nicodemus would have been part of an in-group, a very in-group. But the woman at the well, she would have been shunned. She would have been, because of her moral past, because she had had five husbands, and because the one that she was living with now was not her own, she would have been considered an outcast, a pariah, even among her own people. But not Nicodemus. Everybody would have wanted to hang around Nicodemus. Nobody would have wanted to hang around the woman at the well. As Nicodemus was part of the in-group. The woman at the well, a pariah, an outcast. Number, what are we at? F. Nicodemus was respected. The woman at the well was shunned. Nicodemus would have been a very well-respected man. He was the teacher of Israel. But the woman at the well was not respected. She was shunned. Nicodemus trusted in his own righteousness, and this woman had no righteousness in which to trust. Nicodemus would have been considered ceremonially clean. The woman, ceremonially unclean. Nicodemus was a member of a privileged class, probably very wealthy, very wealthy. The woman at the well, no, not so much. Abused, five husbands, taken up by guys, discarded like a piece of used clothing. She would not have been wealthy. She would have been abused, probably very poor, resting in poverty, living in poverty, but not Nicodemus, a very wealthy man he was. Nicodemus did not believe after talking to Jesus. The woman did believe after talking to Jesus. Nicodemus, and this I find interesting, though he was a Jew, he could not recognize the Messiah when the Messiah was standing right in front of him. This woman, living in Samaria, worshiping on Gerizim, she recognized the Messiah. She gets to the end of the conversation with Jesus. She got it. Nicodemus didn't, but she did. Nicodemus could not admit his sin. This woman could not deny her sin. Nicodemus had previous knowledge of Jesus. He came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, look, we know that you are sent from God because no man can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. This woman had no prior knowledge of Jesus. When she stepped up to the well, all she saw from the dress and from his from his speech was that here was a Jew sitting here. She only knew him as a Jew. Nicodemus knew about Jesus. Nicodemus had witnessed some of Jesus' signs. This woman had never seen a sign done by Jesus. She had no idea whose presence she was in. Nicodemus met with Jesus at night. This woman met with Jesus in broad daylight. Nicodemus sought out Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus. With the woman at the well, it's Jesus who seeks her out. He had to go through Samaria. He had an appointment at a well at high noon. And he had to go there, and he went there. Nicodemus had a high view of Jesus to start with. We know that you are sent from God because no man can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. This woman, all she knew of him was that he was a Jew. Then she came to understand, okay, he's a rabbi. Then she started to realize he's not just a Jew, he's not just a rabbi, this man is the Christ. Which I guess would be a 21st difference between those two, Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Nicodemus, 
He started off with a high view of Jesus coming into the conversation, and we don't have any indication that, that ever changed. But with the woman at the well, she came in with a very low view of Jesus. He was just a Jew. But by the end of the conversation, her opinion and her understanding of Jesus had changed dramatically. So those are the differences between the woman at the well and Nicodemus. How many of you have thought of all of those before? By the way, you'll probably be able to come up with your own differences if you just sit down and read through it and do some thinking. So now all of that brings us back to the text. John chapter 4, the first few verses. We're going to look at two things. We'll sort of set the stage. First, we're going to look at what it is that prompted what it is that prompted this encounter with the woman at the well. And second, we're going to look at the places that are mentioned in John chapter 4. What it is that prompted this encounter. You'll notice in verse 1, Jesus, John says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Jesus found something out. Now, we don't know how he found it out. Maybe it is that some people who came out to him to be baptized said to him, Look, Jesus, the Pharisees understand, they know, they're fully aware that you are making and baptizing more disciples than John. That might be what prompted it. Or it could be that Jesus simply knew this by virtue of his omniscience. Because all the way through the Gospel of John, we get these glimpses of Jesus knowing the heart of his enemies, knowing what is in man, knowing all men, knowing all things. He has an omniscience that he is able to tap into where he understands the motives, the thinking, the thoughts, the intentions of his enemies. And I think that that's what John means here. He knew all men, and here's evidence of that he knew all men. Jesus knew that the Pharisees had learned that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Now, you remember the Pharisees are Jesus' arch enemies, those who have devoted themselves to his destruction so far. They are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, and Jesus has already had an encounter with the Pharisees in the temple in John chapter 2 when he walked into the temple and he cleansed the temple. Well, they had come to the understanding and they had realized that John, who they thought was a danger because he was growing in popularity, was now being surpassed by Jesus, who was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And Jesus, knowing that the Pharisees knew this, he leaves, left Judea and went up toward Galilee. Now, why would Jesus leave and go up toward Galilee when he knew that the Pharisees knew that he had baptized and was making more disciples than John? You remember back in chapter 1, when John the Baptist was growing in popularity, he was a voice crying out in the wilderness, out baptizing people in a baptism of repentance as people came to him. It says in John chapter 1 that the Pharisees sent out a delegation of priests and Levites to say to John, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Or are you Elijah? Remember that conversation? And John said, I'm none of those. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Well, what was going on there? Do you remember that the Pharisees were concerned that John because John was out baptizing and people were following him, and they, as the religious guardians of the nation of Israel, would have wanted to check up on him, find out what's going on. Well, now they have found out that Jesus is baptizing more disciples than John. This guy's growing in popularity. Now, would that concern them? Yes, because only two months prior, three months prior, something in that neighborhood, this man had stepped into the temple and cleansed the temple. He had stepped into the temple and asserted his own authority over the religious life of the nation, Asserted, calling God his father, asserted his authority over the priesthood, over the sacrifices, over what went on to the temple, said that my father's, or called the temple his father's house, and thus asserting his own ownership over the entire temple as the Messiah. And now he's gone out of Jerusalem, and everybody's following him, and his popularity is increasing and exceeding John's. Do you think the Pharisees would be worried about that? You bet they would be worried about that. There was a man who just two months earlier had gone in and trumped them and demonstrated his own authority over them and their religious system. They would certainly be worried about that. So when Jesus found out that, the, or when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had found out he was gaining in popularity, Jesus left. Now look at verse two. Verse two kind of clarifies it. 
Verse 2 says that Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing. It was the disciples who were doing the baptizing. And this is the only place, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, is the only place that we read of in all of the Gospels that Jesus was involved in any kind of baptism ministry. Similar to John's, we've covered the nature of John's baptism and how Jesus ties in with that. It was the same type of baptism. And now Jesus has been baptizing, but John says it wasn't Jesus himself who was doing the baptizing. It was his disciples. Why was Jesus not doing baptizing? I think because baptism itself was not the prime reason that he came to this world. He came to this world to preach the gospel and to die for the sins of all who will believe on him, to pay the penalty for the, for the, um, for the sin of mankind. So Jesus didn't come to baptize, so he didn't baptize himself. He had his disciples do the baptizing. I think that there's a couple very practical reasons why Jesus himself would not have been doing the baptizing. I think, first of all, because it would show Jesus' priority over John the Baptist. Jesus, by not being involved in baptizing people in his own name, was basically saying, look, I'm up here and my disciples and John are both doing my work. It shows its evidence to everybody of Jesus' superiority to John the Baptist. Jesus was aware that people thought that he and John were equals, and Jesus, by not baptizing himself, was saying, I'm over top of John. I'm greater than John. John is doing my work, just like my disciples are doing my work. There's a second, and I think very practical reason why Jesus himself wouldn't have baptized, and that is because it would have it would have sort of cut off at the pass. It would have preempted any sort of discussion or controversy over who got baptized by whom. You can just imagine the situation, can't you? I was baptized by Peter. It happened in the church of Corinth, right, by the way, with Paul. I was baptized by Peter. You can imagine somebody else saying, oh, yeah, I was baptized by the Lord himself. And you, weren't you baptized by Judas Iscariot? I'm not sure your baptism is worth really anything in light of that. What it does show us is that it doesn't matter who does the baptizing. It is the baptism itself in the name of Jesus Christ, which is efficacious. So if you are being, if you are baptized for the right reasons, with the right understanding, in the right way, in the name of Jesus Christ as a follower and a disciple of Christ, doesn't mean it matter whether it was Peter or John or John the Baptist, doesn't matter whether it's the pastor or your dad or a complete stranger. Baptism is what baptism is, and you have been baptized, as it were, by Christ himself. That's why John is able to say Jesus was doing the baptizing, even though it wasn't him, it was his disciples. And so that is the case. My baptism is just in legitimate in the sight of God as if Jesus Christ himself had baptized me because I was baptized in his name by a follower of Christ. So he left Judea. Now, why did he leave? John doesn't say that the Pharisees had any ill intentions toward Jesus. John doesn't say that Jesus feared them, but he left. Why did he leave? I think Jesus left because he knew that a conflict was coming if he was gaining in popularity. And listen, the time was not right for that conflict. Jesus, I believe, is running away from a potential conflict because he knows in his Father's providential plan that the time is not yet. Everything in its time. Listen, the time will come for Jesus to confront the Pharisees. That time is not right now, John chapter 4. The time is not right now. But listen, we're going to have plenty of heat between Jesus and the Pharisees just in the next chapter in John chapter 5. The time will come, but it's not in John chapter 4. Jesus, knowing that, he left and he avoided the danger. He avoided the conflict. It's not cowardly to run. Jesus just knew that in his father's timing, this was not the right time to spark any kind of a conflict. So he left Judea and he went up through Samaria on his way into Galilee. Now that brings us to the places that are mentioned. So we understand what prompted or sort of created the situation. Jesus is leaving Judea and he's going into Samaria or into um, through Samaria into Ju- Galilee to the north. 
So let's look at the places that are mentioned. Notice all the placeholders in John chapter 4, all the places that are mentioned. You see it starting in verse 3. He left Judea, went away into Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Sychar, a Samaria named Sychar. That is the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. There are six place markers in that text. Now this is the time for everybody's favorite part of the sermon, the geography lesson. So if you have been waiting for... Did you just audibly cry out? My son just went, oh. (laughs) So if you have been waiting for an opportunity to go to sleep, now would be the time, the geography lesson. A couple months ago, I say several months ago now, do you remember when I turned the sanctuary into a little bit of a map to illustrate the different regions of the area of Israel? And many of you are wondering, when will that ever come back into play again? Now is the time. In fact, I'm going to step down here just to make this a little bit more uh, easy to do. There were three regions of the nation of Israel. Off to the eastern side was the Jordan River. Remember the, the blue border here is our Jordan River. Up at the north of this is the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is up there and some other cities that Jesus spent a lot of time in. Down at the south end of that is the Dead Sea. And all the water drains to the south, empties into the Dead Sea. There's no exit from the Dead Sea. And it's uh, very salty. All the minerals and the salt flow all the way down. They dump into the Dead Sea where it all evaporates. It's very mineral-rich and salt-rich. Down in the south end, probably back just... This way of the sound cabinet, we where Jerusalem is. Mount Zion, the city of David, the temple was there. The southern region was called Judea. The northern region up here is called Galilee. In between is a region known as Samaria. Samaria. Judea, Samaria, and Galilee in the north. Now, we're all facing north, which makes this really convenient. Off to your left, my right, is the Mediterranean Sea outside of this. Israel itself is between 45 and 60 miles wide, about the width of the Idaho panhandle. Remember that? Depending on which end you measure it at, because it's kind of odd-shaped. Lengthwise, it's about 60 miles, goes from basically the Canadian border all the way, no, more than 60 miles, go, would be from the Canadian border all the way down to that city that's on the lake next to Coeur d'Alene, south of Coeur d'Alene somewhere. What is the name of that city, by the way? What is it? Harrison? St. Mary's. I mentioned it last time I gave the map, and nobody remembers this. It's, okay, neither do I. So anyway, it's about that long. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north. Remember, Galilee's the despised region. Everybody in Judea and down south, they hate all the people in the north. A bunch of backwater hicks. Now, in the United States, you got to go south to get to the hicks. In Israel, you had to go north to get to the hicks, right? Chad's amen and me back there. In between, in between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south was a region called Samaria. Samaria was right smack dab in the middle of that. In Samaria, there were two mountains. I'm going to make, Lanny, you're going to be Mount Ebal. What are you putting in your hair, by the way? <laughs> Lanny's going to be Mount Ebal. Don's head is going to be Mount Gerizim. Now, those two mountains might sound a little bit familiar to you because if you read Deuteronomy chapter 27, you remember there were two mountains, the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing. When the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, up and through the wilderness, and got into the Promised Land, they were to recite all of the blessings on Mount Gerizim and all of the cursings on Mount Ebal. So this Don was known as the Mountain of Blessing. Lanny is known as the Mountain of Cursing, or the Curse, the Cursed One. And there was a valley in between these two mountains. And the assembly gathered together there and they recited all the blessings of the covenant from Mount Ebal, all the curses of the covenant off of Mount, or sorry, off of Mount Gerizim, all the curses of the covenant off of Mount Ebal. Now Jacob's well was right here. This is about a mile difference. This is about a mile between the top of Mount Gerizim and the top of Mount Ebal. About a mile's uh, difference. And by the way, we're not talking about mountain here. We're not talking mountain in the North Idaho sense. We're talking mountain in the Saskatchewan sense. In Saskatchewan, with a good set of binoculars, you can see the back of your own head. It's so flat. And they have a whole different different definition of mountain in Saskatchewan than we have here in North Idaho. In Saskatchewan, a mountain is basically a molehill, by our definition, like a ridge. 
is about a thousand foot elevation between the level of Jacob's well and the top of Mount Gerizim. Now, Jacob's well was located right between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, sort of right in the middle there, about a mile between those two mountaintops, mountain in their sense, not mountain in our sense, Coming up from, just like this aisle, coming up from the south was a road coming from Judea. And it went right up to the middle and stopped at Jacob's well. Standing at Jacob's well, you could look this way. Between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, you could look this way west and slightly north toward the Mediterranean Sea. And there was a valley right there. And the valley right now has a town in it called Nabalus. And you could look out toward the Mediterranean Sea, which was several miles away. You probably wouldn't be able to see the the sea from there, but that's what you'd be looking at. If you turned right and looked uh, to the north East, you'd be looking up the road that went up into Sychar. And that village was about half to three quarters of a mile northeast of Jacob's well. Now today, so these three roads, these three directions all met there. So Jesus would have been coming up the road from Judea, stopped at Jacob's well. The intention would have been to go up through Sychar, all the way through Sychar into Galilee to the north. But he stopped at Jacob's well right by Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans worshipped. They had a temple that was built on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the mountain of cursing. By the way, today, and how do I know all of this? Because of Google Earth. Today, there you can see Jacob's well. It's marked, and there is a house or a a building, a convent, I think, an unfinished building over the top of it. In Jesus' day, there was no building over it. It just would have been a hole in the ground with a wooden or, or mud wall, rock wall, surrounding it, sort of ringing it. And that's probably what Jesus would have sat on. But today, there's a building built over the top, and you can go to this well, it's about 100 feet deep, and you could draw water out of it if you wanted to, or if they let you. But it's marked today, and they're 99.99% certain that that is the well that Jacob dug and that Jesus met the woman at. Go there and see it today. That's the geography lesson. Now for the second part, favorite part of everybody's sermon, the history lesson. So that's right, you get two sleep-inducing sections right in a row, and that is... By the way, this is one of the multitude of reasons why I'll never have a radio program. The history lesson. Now, there's a history behind Samaria. And we're getting all of this because this is going to help explain verse 4 when we finally get to it. Going way back in history to the time of David, you remember there was a kingdom that Saul was the first king, reigned for 40 years. David was the second king, reigned for 40 years. Solomon was the third king, reigned for 40 years. At the end of Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was known as Israel. The southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. Now, down in the southern kingdom, they had a capital city. It was Jerusalem, which stayed the capital through um, David and Solomon's reign and all the way through the rest of the, the history of the nation of Judah. To the north was the nation of Israel. Israel's capital city was Samaria. Over the course of time, much later, the whole region came to be known as Samaria. In Jesus' day, they referred to the whole region of Samaria because that was its capital city, the city of Samaria. The northern kingdom, which began in rebellion because they didn't want to have anything to do with... Uh, I always get those two mixed up. Rehoboam or Jeroboam, one of those two Boams that was um, Solomon's son. They didn't want anything to do with that, so they rebelled. Ten tribes formed the northern kingdom, the the kingdom of Israel. It started in rebellion. It continued in rebellion. They didn't have one single good godly king. Not one. Judah had a few. But Israel didn't have a single godly king. All of them were wicked and corrupt from the first to the last. And they were corrupt all the way until the northern kingdom finally fell in 722 B.C., And they were conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in, they conquered the land, and here's what they did in those days. They would take a bunch of people from the land of Israel and scatter them all over the Assyrian Empire, disperse them. Then they would take a bunch of people from all over the Assyrian Empire and put them in the land of Israel. Now, they had two reasons for doing this. Number one, they wanted to wipe out their national identity. 
So there, over the course of a couple of generations, there would be intermarrying, and pretty soon you wouldn't really have any of those Israelites anymore. You wouldn't be able to tell who they were. There'd be Jewish blood there, but none of the nationalistic distinctions of being a nation or a people. The second reason was to basically syncretize their religion with all of the other religions of the empire. So that if you had a people who was committed to one particular type of religion, by putting all the people from the empire into that area, they brought all of their gods and all of their religious practices with them and basically blurred or wiped out all the national and religious distinctions of the people. That's why they did that. So over the course of time, it had its effect. The northern kingdom began to, the Jews that were there began to intermarry with all of the other people and they started to pick up all the religious practices. Over the course of time, they went from being polytheistic because all the other people were there to sort of gravitating toward monotheism. So by the time of Jesus' day, they were a monotheistic, a one God worshiping people. But the Samaritans only acknowledged the first five books of the Old Testament as inspired, the books of Moses. All of the rest of it, they rejected. And they considered themselves, they fashioned themselves as Yahweh worshipers, worshipers of the God of Israel. And there was a conflict that grew out, and you can see it in John chapter 4, where they said, we worship on Mount Gerizim, on Don's head. We worship on Mount Gerizim. And you people, you Jews, you worship down in Israel. Remember the conflict that we read about earlier? That's where that came from. They have wanted nothing to do with the land of Judah. So the Jews in the south, they said, Oh, you Samaritans, you've intermingled with the Assyrians. You've lost your national identity. You've lost the one true religion. You no longer worship the same God. We want nothing to do with you. So after the south fell in 586 B.C., and then after a 70-year captivity in Babylon, the Jews came back to rebuild their temple, their people, and their wall. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. In the reconstruction of the temple, the people from Samaria, Ezra chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, asked the Jews in the south in Judea, hey, let us help you out. Well, they were enemies of God's people in the south. And Ezra said, no, we got nothing to do with you. Stay away. We don't need your help. Well, see that animosity. That just doesn't do good for personal relationships when you treat people like that. And it didn't help that in about 180-something B.C., the Jews went into Samaria and burned down the temple that was on Don's head, on Mount Gerizim. They burned down their temple. So that by the time of Jesus' day, they went up there to worship, but it was basically a burned-out, slightly reconstructed ruin of a temple is where they worshiped. The Jews and the Samaritans never got along. They always hated each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. And this brings us to John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Here's why I explain all of that. Not just to set up John chapter 4, but there's a double meaning in John chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, what does John mean by that? That Jesus had to pass through Samaria? Well, you say, obviously, it's the shortest route. If you're going to come from the south, you're going to come all the way up the road, stop at Jacob's well, and continue up through there. He had to pass through it, because between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, there was no other place for him to go. He had to pass through Samaria, because he's going from the south to the north. He had to go through it. But technically, he didn't have to go through it. You see, strict Jews, really strict Jews, never passed through Samaria. They would go out of their way to go over the Jordan River into an area called Perea, which was all Gentiles, travel up the Jordan River on the other side past Samaria, cross the Jordan River again into Galilee. So though it was the shortest route, technically speaking, Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. So what does John mean when he said Jesus had to go through Samaria? He means more than it's the shortest route. And here's what I think John is getting at. Jesus had an appointment at a well with a woman at noon on a God-ordained day. And that appointment was from eternity past. And he knew in his father's plan that he had to be there. He had to go through Samaria. Throughout the Gospel of John, John uses that term, Jesus had to do this, this must have happened, 
um, this must happen in order for this to happen. I think it's six or seven times in John's Gospel, John uses that terminology to describe what Jesus had to do in order to fulfill the Father's will. Verse 34 of this chapter, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That included this encounter at Jacob's well next to Mount Gerizim with this woman. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment with a woman at the well to bring salvation to her. So what is the whole gist of John chapter 4? Just by way of introduction. The point of John chapter 4, not about a woman getting saved. It's not just about Jesus revealing that he's the Messiah. It's The point of John chapter 4 is this. It is the first major, unmistakable, you can't miss it, illustration that Jesus Christ came into the world because he loved the world and he wanted to save the world and he offered the gospel to the world, not just Jews. This is the first glimpse where we see the gospel God's intention in the gospel, God's intention in Christ, is to open up the floodgates of grace to the Gentiles so that all of the nations might be his, so that he might call out from among every tribe and every kindred and every people and every nation on the face of the earth, a people for his own choosing, all to the glory of his precious grace. John chapter 4 is the beginning of that. And you're going to see the scope of the scope of God and the intention of God in the gospel of John broaden from this point forward something that the other gospel writers don't show us. All right, all that to serve by way of introduction, and then next week we'll pick it up in the middle of verse 6 with the weariness of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that the gospel has been brought to us and that your intention is to save us. We thank you that there are sheep that are not of that fold and that we are among those sheep, and that you have called us by name, you have brought us to yourself, and your grace is abundant and free. Thank you for this time that we've had, and we pray that these things would stay in our minds and in our hearts, that we might reflect upon them and uh, consider them as we work our way through this passage. We praise you for your goodness and your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.